Welcome to the podcast about everything. I'm your host, Don Mast. For today's episode, we will talk about American history from the Civil War through World War II with a special guest who's not only an author, but he's also an educator and a great historian. Enjoy episode number five of the podcast about everything. Hello, and thank you so much for joining us for the podcast about everything. My name is Don Mast, and I'm your loyal host. And uh, as you know, we are all about intriguing and unique stories and storytellers. And today, I think we have one of the best. Well, two, if you consider my co-host one of the best as well, I'd like to introduce, first of all, my well-educated partner in crime, my co-host, Michael Allison, who's not only a friend, uh, but he's also co-owner or he's owner of Studio EFX, as well as he's a talented artist, historical restoration expert, a historian of all things interesting, including folklore, as well as he's a lecturer for the Historical Society and a connoisseur of the great story. Welcome, Michael. Hi, good to be here. <laughs> Glad to have you as always. And, and as I mentioned, we have uh, someone here that I think is going to be one of our best shows. And, and his name is Jared. Frederick, and he has had a lifelong passion for American history. Among his books include Images of Modern America, Gettysburg National Military Park, and Dispatches of D-Day. Uh, Jared also served as a park ranger at the Gettysburg National Military Park and also Harpers Ferry National Historical Park. He's currently serving as an instructor of history at Penn State here in Altoona, Pennsylvania, where he specializes in various realms of American history and civic engagement, but also having served as a uh, commentator for the Civil War Trust online Civil War in four series, he's also appeared on C-SPAN, PBS, PCN, as well as numerous National Park Service productions and also, funny enough, in 2019, he acted as the guest host for my favorite network, Turner Classic Movies, for the channel's 25th anniversary where he introduced Gettysburg, the movie. So he is a Civil War and World War II reenactor who also believes that, that the past can be taught in spheres beyond the classroom. He was, in 2016, he was the past president or the president of the uh, nonprofit Blair County Historical Society. And he's also won countless awards for education and history. I welcome Jared Frederick to the podcast about everything. Hello, Jared. Hello. Thank you for having me. Good to see you, Jared. Well, at least to hear you. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> um, on our podcast, Jared, we're, as Don had said, we're all about storytelling. Uh, sometimes the stories are factual. Sometimes they're not. But we love a good story. And uh, I would like to start this off by asking you about your book that you recently published. Uh, if you could talk about it a little bit and uh, especially about the research, what all you had to do to write it, your D-Day book. Um, so tell us, Jared, 
What's your story? Sure. Well, uh, thank you once again uh, for having me. And, you know, oddly enough, my story in regard to my D-Day book, uh, like so many good stories, begins in a dumpster of all places. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and one day, a student of mine came into the classroom with a pile of old yellowed newspapers. And he informed me that one of his uh, older neighbors had passed away and the family was cleaning house and they were just heaving stuff out the window into a dumpster. And at the top of the pile was this stack of old newspapers. And as he investigated further, he discovered that those newspapers were from the World War II years. And so whatever... Uh, those papers represented to the person who originally owned them. The, the descendants uh, obviously didn't have much value for them. And uh, being the good student that he was, he swiped those newspapers from the top of the dumpster, brought them into class because he knew that I liked old stuff like this. Oh, um, and so we began paging through these newspapers and I was really captivated just by the level of detail that was in them and the stories that they revealed. And of course, newspapers in the 1940s were like double the size of what they are now uh, because it was one of the few resources that people had to enlighten themselves about current happenings in the world. Uh, and so uh, from that, I embarked on this endeavor to find other examples of really compelling stories, particularly about D-Day, as they were depicted in American newspapers. And my goal was not originally to craft a book, uh, but merely to gather a sampling of such documents that I could incorporate into classroom activities. And several months later, after I had transcribed 300,000 words, and newspaper articles from the era, I realized that I had a story uh, that was bigger and should be shared beyond the confines of the traditional classroom. Um, and so that is how my book got started, quite by accident. Uh, but ultimately, it was the power of story that compelled me to do what I did. Well, we love old stuff here. As a matter of fact, some of your uh, hosts here identify with old stuff pretty strongly, um, being old stuff themselves. <laughs> uh, but uh, tell us more about your research. Um, it's literally, your book is literally about letters written home. And I know you've also traveled throughout Europe doing research for World War II. How did that come together? Sure. In regard to what my research yielded, it, I discovered many fascinating and surprising things along the way. Uh, first and foremost, uh, the level of detail uh, that service members and civilians alike were allowed to convey in their correspondence and in their newspaper reports. Uh, we often think that all mail was... Uh, you know, very sternly censored during the war years. And to an extent, that was true. Uh, but what I found in my research 
uh, is that soldiers uh, express these very, you know, heartfelt stories that encompassed a very wide range of emotion um, from humor to hardship to horror. And yeah. in many cases, they did not, um, you know, they certainly did not whitewash what they had gone through. And so their letters were mailed home. And in, in many cases, uh, family members, after they had read them, uh, they shared them with the local newspapers because communities being what they were, other citizens of that town were curious as to what the local sons were doing overseas. And so it was this huge untapped historical resource uh, that historians have never really used up until this point. And it's wow. because so many of these things would have been impossible to gather through microfilm even 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really wow. through the power of digital history and all of these you know, wonderful databases coming into being that have made these, these firsthand accounts more accessible than ever. Wow. Um, is part of the, what's behind this, what's driving this, the fact that that's an entire generation that is really rapidly disappearing? I oh. know for, in my own case, I do lectures on and help a group that talks about Holocaust studies. And uh, the number of Holocaust survivors is coming down to almost a handful of people. So the mm -hmm. actual witnesses are just about gone. Yeah. And I, I think here too is, is where my book differs from a, a lot of other Second World War books, uh, whether they be memoirs or uh, books written by historians that, that look at accounts that are often written long after the fact in retrospect. Um, and with my book, I hardly use any, you know, uh, more recent, you know, firsthand scholarship or memoirs or anything of, of that nature. Um, the bulk of my book is firsthand accounts from people that you've never heard of uh, whose words haven't been read largely since 1944. Wow. And that's incredible. And you know, the fog of war has not settled in quite as much by, by that point. You know, no firsthand account is perfect. You know, your, your, mm -hmm. your, your, your sense of surrounding and place on a battlefield where, you know, it's all consuming. Uh, you know, you might only be aware of what's happening within six or eight feet of you. Um, but all yeah. that said, um, the perspective is certainly fresher, you know, than, let's say, uh, retrospectives that were written in the 1990s or the 2000s. So um, I, I think that that too is something that, that sets the book apart um, is that there's a sense of place and there's really a sense of immediacy to the words that you're reading. Mm -hmm. Don and I have both found in our readings of literature, poetry, Don's did, he's done some work with, old newspaper articles. Uh, we, he had a bonus episode that involved an old newspaper article. Um, there's a tendency, I, I guess it's natural, 
to impose a current mindset on historical accounts um did you how hard is it to avoid that when you're writing a book like yours uh that's a great question and i i suppose there's many ways that i could answer it um i think one thing that really sets us apart uh for better or for worse from the world war ii generation is how they attained and how they processed information Mm-hmm. Um, you know, today, you know, we can go to any website that we want to that can either, you know, uh, validate or oppose our pre-existing notions and whatnot. Um, and, you know, you could argue the pros or cons of that, depending on your perspective. But in the 1940s, uh, people essentially had three sources that they could go to. And that was their local newspaper, the radio and newsreels that would show before a feature film at your local movie theater. And that was it. And so the way in which they absorbed information, the way that they processed it, uh, the perspectives that they had uh, about journalism uh, at the time, I think one could make the argument are vastly different. Um, from how, you know, many people in the public perceive those issues today. Um, So that's one thing. Um, And then, uh, of course, uh, another big factor, um, you know, the the 1940s was very much a man's world when it came to, you know, the power dynamics at play. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And even more particularly, it was a white man's world. And here, too, Um, is something that was really surprising in my research is that D-Day became this symbolic crucible to the American people, especially those who had not gotten their fair share as citizens. And it most definitely becomes a foundation for uh, not only the civil rights movement that will gain a lot of momentum in the 1950s, um, but also female empowerment, because you have all these disparate elements of American society who were treated like second-class citizens, and it was their involvement, either directly or indirectly, in the invasion that really instilled in them a sense of confidence to think of themselves as truly worthy of American citizenship in all of its benefits and forms. Um, And so those were some of the really big and surprising kind of social aspects of the Normandy invasion that I had not anticipated in finding. Wow. That's interesting. Now, quick question for you. When you were doing all of your extensive travel and research for this book, are there any specific um, stories or specific people that you met along the way that really kind of stand out that you would like to share? Yeah, I, and there too, I, I, could, I could name several. Um, my, one of my more recent travels to Normandy was uh, last summer, uh, shortly after the, the 75th anniversary of the beginning of the invasion. And uh, you know, I have a, a personal connection to this tale as well. Uh, my grandfather was 
uh, a member of the 4th Infantry Division, and uh, he went ashore on Utah Beach on D-Day. And uh, part of my journey uh, last summer was to retrace his footsteps to an extent. And uh, my my traveling companions and I found ourselves in a a very small town that's kind of off the radar, and it's not a big tourist hub like many of the other Normandy towns are, uh, but its name is Reville, and uh, it's, it's going up the, the Cherbourg Peninsula. And as it turned out, while, while we were overseas, um, this town was celebrating the 75th anniversary of its liberation. Um, a, town, a town that my grandfather had been a liberator of. Uh, and wow, so that's great. Ev- every year on the anniversary of their liberation, um, all the townspeople come out to a monument uh, on the outskirts of, of the historic district. And they have a ceremony. The mayor comes out and gives a speech. Uh, and then they, they all raise a, a glass of wine or Calvados. Um, to toast the American liberators who, you know, granted them their, their freedom from Nazi oppression. And uh, so I I was traveling with uh, seven or eight friends and we decided we were going to attend this ceremony and we were the only Americans there. And so we, we, we became, you know, the de facto ambassadors for our country while we were there. And that's great. Yeah. And then when they found out um, that my grandfather had been among the unit that liberated their town, they asked me to come up to the platform and formally be part of the ceremonies with them. And afterward, you know, the mayor took us out to lunch and, and paid for our meals. And we had a wonderful conversation with all these townspeople. And it just goes to show how appreciative three quarters of a century later uh, the French are for what these young Americans did on their behalf. That's an incredible story. Wow. Yeah, I'd say I'd say that's the most powerful one. Wow. So before we move on to another question and another story, uh, how can our listeners get their hands on your book? Uh, you can uh, either uh, obtain it on Amazon uh, or you okay. can visit my website at jaredfrederick.com. And uh, if you want a personalized copy, you can order it through my personal website. Um, but otherwise, you can uh, obtain it on Amazon. And it's called Dispatches of D-Day. I'm sure Don will put links uh, up on the podcast so that people can go to your website and you also maintain a blog, correct? Yes, although not as actively as I used to, but there's still a lot of good articles and content on there from past years. Great, great. Um, so what got you interested in history? I mean, you and I have met a long, 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 long time ago. <laughs> and um, so what, what's piqued your interest in history, Jared? Oh, truly, uh, it was it was the movie Gettysburg, uh, the same movie that I ended up introducing on Turner Classic Movies last year. 
Uh, my aunt and cousins were uh, babysitting me when I was in first grade or so. And uh, they put this movie on one day and I was just enthralled with it. And I had never really seen a movie like that before. Um, not with so many people and with such scale. And I, and I was able to, the stories resonated with me uh, for whatever <laughs> reason. And so the following summer, my parents took me on my first trip to Gettysburg. And I did what every kid did. You know, I got the, the cappy and the bag of figures and, you know, th things <laughs> of that nature. Uh, and uh, the bug bit me. And, you know, as I joke, I've had the disease ever since. Um, <laughs> and, and so, you know, uh, it, it really uh, it testifies to the role that, you know, things like movies and songs and popular culture can have in, you know, uh, laying down a beginning for, you know, one's vocation, oddly enough. Wow. So is Gettysburg then? Um, and then you went on, uh, later on to spend your summers as a park ranger. And one of the locations, um, as if we can't see this coming from a mile away, happened to be Gettysburg where you were a park ranger. Indeed. Yeah. 15 uh, years. On my end of things on the folkloric <laughs> end of things, of course, Gettysburg is known as uh, quote unquote the most haunted town in Pennsylvania and as I like to say uh -huh. oh. except for all the other ones um, here we go here we go here we go as someone, no I'm just saying <laughs> as someone who's dealing with the public um, you must have a few interesting stories between the collision of the paying the paying customer <laughs> and the history of Gettysburg uh, is there any of those that you could possibly share with us oh Boy, there are there any that you want to share? <laughs> I I knew this was coming. I've, I've tried to forget some of them, um, but uh, uh, but here's here's how I I like to put it, and I'll give you the diplomatic answer, and then we can get into the, the nitty gritty. Uh, Gettysburg represents many things to many people. Yeah. And for for some, it is a sacred historical shrine and people yes. there want to become emotionally connected with that story. There are other mm -hmm. people who go right. there right. because of its scenic beauty, it being a 19th century time capsule of sorts. Uh, there are people who use it for recreational purposes. And yes, there are other people who seek questions about the unknown and the great beyond uh, as well. And every single one of them uh, has the right to be there. And as long as they do it in a respectful and non-damaging manner, you know, anybody under mm -hmm. the sun can go there and enjoy it for what they perceive it to be and why they cherish it most. So that's, that's my good kind of historical and diplomatic answer for you on that point. Um, all that said, there have been some, you know, colorful instances and individuals um, I have encountered along the way um, who have gone out there to seek some of those answers. Um, most of them, uh, you know, end up somewhat comedically, um, despite how their quest began in, in the first place and whatnot. Um, 
But, you know, on occasion, I would go on uh, night patrols with the park police and whatnot while I worked there because I wanted to get a full range of perspective as to how the park operated. And, you know, during the summer months, the the park closes at at 10 p.m. And, uh, you know, visitors are, are not allowed in there again until sunrise. And uh, so I was in the front seat of the squad car with one of my colleagues, and we were going up the bends of Culp's Hill. And all of a sudden, uh, something big and bulky and white flashed out into the middle of the road. And we were both, we were both okay. caught off guard by it, uh, really. You know, it really took our breath away. Um, like it would. Yes. Um, and so, you know, he screeched the car to a halt. Uh, he stopped and we weren't sure what it was at first. Uh, and then a human head popped up. No. <laughs> and, no. <laughs> and he shined the spotlight out onto the road. And there we found a drunken man. <laughs> <laughs> and a big white uh. T-shirt, <laughs> uh, who was with his son, who was also inebriated at that moment, and uh, there were beer bottles and cans strewn all around them, and they had a camcorder with them, and so the the ranger law enforcement officer got got out of the car and he said, "Hey guys, what are you doing out here?" And they said, we're looking for ghosts. And that's why they had their camcorder with them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And obviously, we all know it is much easier to see spirits after you've had spirits. (laughs) Yeah. True. (laughs) Yes, sirree. That that is is, probably more truth in that statement than most we will hear in the history of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) As you know, and I, I want you to tell a couple more stories, if you're willing to. I mean, you know, just the average day-to-day visitors and, you know, maybe some quirky things that you were involved with or that happened. But I spent a little time in Gettysburg, and I, and I think my observation was um, I spent my time up on a scaffold and uh, in a parking lot, and I never met a more interesting collection of people who all had something to sell in my life (laughs) from the, from the guy who wanted to take all my money and invest it and guaranteed me 7% to the guy who drove around in a broken down station wagon uh, and would photograph orbs. That was his big deal. He was an orb photographer late at night on the battlefield. To the guy who had rewritten Pink Floyd songs to make the lyrics about the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, it's wow. an interesting. It's an interesting place. <laughs> it it surely is, and I, I can't speak anything to uh, the investment firm that that you uh, addressed there. But uh, well, you know, seven percent. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, it's it, it's a microcosm of American tourism. 
of global tourism. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that was one of the great joys that I had in working there the five years that I did is that I had the opportunity to meet people from every walk of life, from every personal and political persuasion imaginable, uh, people from all over the world uh, who were drawn to this place for one reason or another. And, you know, there are many comical stories from my days of working there uh, that I can recall. Um, And then there's also some very uh, somber and revealing ones uh, as well. Um, And so I'll start off with a a few funny ones. Um, When when I worked there, uh, I decided to start keeping what we ultimately titled the Ha Ha Book. And that's where after you get a really good question, a really memorable question um, by a visitor, whether they call in or whether they come to the front desk or something like that, um, that, that you would make note of it um, for you know, your, your own personal entertainment at, at a later point. Um, and, you know, as is the case with all tourism destinations, park rangers there get some pretty good ones now and again. Uh, a, a, a favorite one um, that is often repeated uh, is why aren't there any bullet holes in the monuments? Ah. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. Um, or... Uh, how high did the floodwaters go at the high water mark of the Confederacy? Um, you know, the, oh and there there are many wow. there are many uh, innocent ones like that. Um, yeah. There are some some fun ones uh, along the way too. Um, some of them, which uh, perhaps aren't worth repeating in a public forum, is this. Uh, <laughs> um, but you know, there, there were there were our our share of of fun. Uh, instances of comedy and misadventure, um, vacation Griswold style um, episodes <laughs> uh, that, that play out in the park. Um, so there's there's many like that, but then there's also uh, the very the very evocative and and emotional ones. And uh, another night that I was uh, you know out, out on the park in the evening and and things were shutting down. Uh, I was helping a, a colleague uh, close the gate to the Soldiers National Cemetery, uh, where mm-hmm. all the dead from the battle lay, and where Abraham Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address. And you know, it, it's mm-hmm. it's almost dark. The sun has gone down beneath the mountains, and a a bus pulls up in the parking lot below us, and immediately dozens and dozens of people begin pouring out and they come up the hill they come up to the gate and we find out that this busload of people is from china and they had they had an interpreter with them and they said the interpreter said this bus was going from philadelphia to washington and we made a detour to come to gettysburg because a lot of people on the bus wanted to see gettysburg 
Um, and so, and so we, you know, we were like, we aren't going to like deny these people the opportunity to see this one place in their few minutes that they have here. And so working in a public venue as such, you know, it requires flexibility and, you know, a, a degree of accommodation on people who deserve it, frankly. Sure. Sure. And so uh, we took them into the cemetery and I gave them, you know, a, a dime tour, so to speak. And the, the translator was conveying it back to them in their native language. And as they were leaving, I asked the translator, you know, that's a, a pretty long detour from your route. You know, what, what brought you guys here? What was, what, was, what was the catalyst for all these folks wanting to see this place? And he said, oh, Gettysburg is very special to these folks. The Gettysburg Address was the first thing they learned to read in English. Wow. And so it really oh. put it into international perspective to me, uh, the, the power and the meaning of something That's, like the Gettysburg Address in, in a communist country, no less, um, you know, uh, of what that signified for people all around the globe. And, you know, it's moments like that where I realized, wow, I'm a very fortunate person to work in a place like this. It, that that address is something that has been elevated from a simple speech, and it was considered a simple speech. I mean, it was almost totally ignored after immediately after it was given mm-hmm. because of the orator who gave what was it a three-hour speech? Close to it, yeah. That day. <laughs> Right. Uh, uh, Edward Horton. Was it Edward oh, Everett? Edward Horton. Edward Everett Horton. Yes. Yep. And so that's the actor. Edward Everett Edward is Everett. the orator. Edward Everett Horton. Yeah, is he's the, actor. the orator. The other, <laughs> the other is, his, is his yeah. child. Who the other one. Great, yeah, great great grandchild who became an actor, I believe. I think they were actually blood. Oh, related, okay. But that that's neither here nor there. Yeah. But but the fact of the matter is, this incredible piece a very beautifully written uh, prose has been elevated to the level of poetry mm-hmm. in, yes. internationally. It's so, be- so beautiful and so well-respected and yet so simple and so succinct mm-hmm. at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, Don. Yes. Yes. I wanted to get something in here. I, if you go to um, Jared's website, jaredfrederick.com, not only does he have the book that we just talked about a few moments ago, but he also has a couple other books that I find very interesting. The Images of Modern America, where you, where you get a, a great look, a, a, a picturesque view of the Gettysburg battlefield, as Jared was just talking about. But then also there's the, the Images of Modern America, where we're talking about Altoona, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. Uh, would you sure. want to talk about and that? I'll a little try bit? to encapsulate the premise of both of those books. Um, both of those are sure. published through Arcadia Publishing. And for anyone who's been to any museum anywhere, um, that publishing company often produces those sepia toned Keller booklets that are usually around a hundred pages and have uh, pictures of, you know, local areas and towns and so on and so forth. Um, And so 
It's it's oh, yeah. the same uh, company that makes those. This is uh, kind of one of a, one of their spinoffs of their earlier renditions of their books. And um, these books, um, specifically those two, uh, look at more contemporary history. And so I categorize that as post World War II and onward. And that way, you can have a lot of color photos and really you know eye popping imagery uh, throughout the book. Um, and so with, with my Altoona book, absolutely. really what I wanted it to be was a form of a wake-up call um, to the citizens of Altoona, Pennsylvania, to raise awareness about all of the really wonderful historical buildings that we've lost over the past 50 years, and to hopefully right. have that awareness transform into a mandate where we actively try to save our historical structures rather than tearing them down and putting in a parking lot like we have in so many instances. Mm. And, and, you know, you're right. Um, it may seem, you know, wild to think about this, but, you know, Altoona as it is right now, you know, we, we've reached, I think the peak of consciousness on that level, at least in the span of my lifetime, I'm 32 years old. And, you know, I, students are often shocked when I tell them, you know, that downtown Altoona is actually the best now that it's been in my entire lifetime. And, you know, because yeah. they they can't conceive of Absolutely. a time in which that was a bustling, hopping, vibrant social place to be. You know, they can't picture mm -hmm. the sidewalks brimming with people at Christmas time with people doing shopping. And. And so, right, you know, right. I thought the only way that we can bring back any degree of what downtown Altoona was, was to revisit it through pictures. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and there's still a lot of work to do. There's still a lot of awareness that needs raised. There's still a lot of apathy that needs to be fought. Uh, but, you know, it's a lot of, you know, believe it or not, millennials who are doing this work, people who are in their 30s and in their 40s, who yep. have found value and You're purpose right. mm -hmm. in historic old buildings and are repurposing them and reinvigorating, you know, a new life into places like downtown Altoona. Um, so my, my generation often gets a, a bad oh. rap um, in regard to active citizenship and whatever. Um, but I think this is one prime example uh, that, that disproves those sorts of assumptions. Preach it. I agree with you 110%. And, and also on your website, you know, many people may not know this, but you're an artist and you have some books for young adults uh, that focus on Civil War leaders as well as yep. uh, historic Pennsylvania. And you also have some some. Fantastic yeah, and well. I'm I'm not as good as as Michael here, our our fine co-host. Um, but uh, I I dabbled in a lot of stuff when I was younger, and you know I I really enjoyed pencil sketches, pen and ink, uh, acrylic on canvas, and it, it and what I did is that I I merged my joy of art with my passion for history, and I did a lot of historical art. And that's really how I got my, my foot in the door of the historical profession. Uh, so that, that first book, you know, they were, you know, 40 page 
coloring books for all intents and purposes, uh, meant for young adults, uh, you know, upper middle school age. And uh, really, I, I just wanted to tell a story and I wanted to do it through kind of artistic expression done in an accurate sort of manner. And those books for as small as they were, I ended up selling about 10,000 of them. That's, and that's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, and you know, I, I suspect great. I got a lot of, a lot of customers because, you know, they were kind of you know sympathetic to a young person who was just getting started. And so I, 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 I think I gained a lot of support uh, in that sort of manner. Um, but, you know, I, I started to, go to conferences. I started going to, you know, historical events. I started to meet people. Um, and so those little 40 page coloring books really became a, a pillar of the historian that I am today. Um, and because I believe that, you know, history needs to be accessible, especially to young people and what young person mm -hmm. doesn't like to color. So, exactly. so that, that's, exactly. that was my train right. of thought in doing those books. I don't know if you remember or not, but at one event you were selling your books and my wife came and was really charmed by you and your books. And I think she bought one or two of them. And then she went and got me and said, I have just met the most amazing young man. You have to meet him. And she dragged me over and I said, oh, <laughs> hi, Jared. How's it going? <laughs> <laughs> and she just kind of looked at me and said, yeah, you know everything. <laughs> um, but yeah, you've accomplished, I mean, what you've accomplished in a brief period of time is absolutely mind-boggling. And I want to congratulate you, not only as someone who admires you, but as a friend, you know, I want to congratulate well, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, can you quickly tell us a little bit about your reenactments that you've done? Yeah. Um, so about 10 years ago, as I was finishing up my undergraduate degree in history at Penn State Altoona, um, I formed a really strong friendship with a half a dozen other uh, history grads. And we all had, you know, common interests in uh, American history and military history and, and so on and so forth. And one of them um, had been doing World War II reenacting since he was 16 or, or 17 years old. And so he pitched the idea to us one day. He said, you know, I have extra uniforms and stuff like that. If you want to try the hobby on for size, you can join me at an event and we can start doing some stuff. And sure enough, we did. And we ended up forming our own little outfit. Uh, from that. Um, and so that was, that was 10 years ago. And uh, our, our group has grown exponentially. We have about, oh, 35 or 40 members uh, today. And uh, wow, that's impressive. we portray uh, kind of your common American GIs from the Second World War. We have uh, authentic clothing and equipment. We have a few Jeeps. And we typically do uh, 12 to 15 events per year throughout the Mid-Atlantic where we'll set up camp and people can 
come browse our setup and hopefully they'll get a better sense of uh, what the World War II generation went through. Uh, so that, that's what we're all about there. And uh, it's, it's, it's very rewarding. Um, you know, it, it's easy to be dismissive of it, uh, thinking of it as just kind of a uh, grown-up dress-up, you know, uh, in that sort of manner. Um, but we, we really have, you know, a, a firm conviction in, in what we're doing uh, because, you know, like I said, uh, history can and should be applied to places other than the formal setting of the classroom. And that's just another way of doing that. That's great. Well, um, we're approaching the end of our time together. Um, I want to thank you. Don, do you have any further questions that you want to ask? I do not. I just, I just wanted to say that, you know, Jared, uh, coming from somebody that's been through the education system, uh, I, I really think that we need more teachers, educators like you, uh, that, that really are passionate um, and are really focused on, on, on spreading and sharing history to the next generation and to keeping it alive. And, you know, I also appreciate you for um, really coming after and, and empowering folks to invest in their community, uh, being uh, Altoona, Pennsylvania as well. So, so I Thank appreciate you. that I very appreciate much. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know, history is uh, it's the story of everything. And no matter what you're interested in or what you care about, it has its own history. And there's really no other subject that you learn in school that can claim that. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's an important time for us to be historically aware, historically literate, use our critical thinking skills, and use the lessons of the past to forge a better tomorrow. And that's the conviction that I take into the classroom every day that I teach. Well, thank you, Jared, for coming on our podcast and for your passion for your love and your love of history. Uh, it's been great. Thanks for coming. Thanks on. for having me. And, and once again, for folks that uh, want to check out Jared's book, I encourage you to go to jaredfrederick.com and, and learn more, uh, see his artwork and, and purchase his books. He'll sign them for you. And then, Michael, what's ah, on deck for we're going our back next podcast? To some folklore, but some of it will be contemporary. We're doing a monster trifecta of three creatures <laughs> whose stomping grounds you can visit uh, during a day trip from right here in Altoona. A one-day trip will take you to see one of these three creatures we're going to be discussing. The New Jersey Devil, the Snallygaster, and the Mothman. Mm. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Well, I, I encourage listeners to, again, uh, uh, support, uh, share, and subscribe. We appreciate your time. And also, guys, if, what is your story? Do you have a unique story? We want to hear about it. You know, feel free to reach out to us via Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or you could also go up to the uh, very top of this podcast and message us. Uh, we'd love to hear your story, and you never know. You may be on the next podcast about everything. Thank you so much for joining us. So long. And be safe.